We are uh, going to be uh, continuing, fittingly enough, a sermon series in the Gospel of John. If you've been with us over uh, the last nine months or so, we've been looking at the entire story of the Gospel of John, which is simply the uh, one man's account, one of Jesus' early followers' account of his life, and then in most recent chapters of his death, and then as we'll see today, his resurrection. And so um, we are going to be looking this morning at John chapter 20. Um, It's our custom here uh, to stand when God's word is read. That's not out of superstition or anything like that, but simply as a sign of respect that we're ready to listen and then to go out and to obey uh, and to take seriously what what we hear. And so if you are willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Our reading today is from John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it is given to us in love. Amen. You can be seated. In September of 2013, uh, the cover story of Time magazine, the headline uh, of the cover story was this question, can Google solve death? Can Google solve death? Should I save you buying the whole magazine? We got an answer. Uh, Google had just invested a substantial amount of money in starting a, uh, an organization called Calico Labs, 
with the express purpose of tackling the issues uh, that shorten the human lifespan and to see if they could, over time, with enough money and enough technology, uh, begin to solve death, begin to push back uh, the forces of sickness and death uh, that hangs over human life. Uh, that was uh, five years ago now, and nothing seems imminent on the solution front, uh, despite Google's uh, best efforts to solve death. But there's something about that, something about the desire uh, to solve death, that we know if we could figure it out, if we could somehow uh, take the fear and the pain and the worry of death, if that shroud could be lifted off of human life, that it would change everything, that it would change in a profound way, not only the way that we approach death, but the way that we approach life. Right? To go about life as though uh, death wasn't just hanging out there as a cliff uh, that inevitably all of us would fall off of. And so we know that if there really was a solution to death, it would change absolutely everything. And that, of course, uh, is what we celebrate today. It's what Christians from the first followers of Jesus that we meet in our story, over the last 2,000 years, what we have believed is that one has indeed solved death. Now, it's not uh, through human ingenuity or technology or money, right? No amount of human effort uh, can solve death. That's what the ancients would call the height of hubris, to believe that we could somehow outrun the gods, right? To, that we could outrun death. But we believe that God, through the person of his son, Jesus Christ, has actually defeated death in such a way that if we actually believe it, if we lay hold of it, that it has the power to change not only the way we face our death, but the way that we face absolutely everything about our lives. Now, the problem the problem is that none of us uh, really experience all that deeply, the way that we should, the power of the resurrection to change our lives. Amen. Right? We see it in, the, in, in just these first stories that some of Jesus' first followers, Peter and John, you notice the first part of our, our reading, everybody's running around in the dark and nobody understands what's happening. Right? Mary sees it, she runs to get Peter and John, they come back, they see an empty tomb, it says they believe, but they don't... They don't seem to, they don't seem to understand, and so they just go home. Right? That unbelief, the, the problem with actually believing it and having it change our lives persists. It's persisted from them, and it, and it persists in us. Now, for some of you uh, here today, the unbelief, the, the questioning of the resurrection is so thick as to make the entire thing seem unplausible. Right, you're here uh, with much the same curiosity that leads us to watch uh, those reality TV shows where people go hunting for Bigfoot. Have you ever seen that one? Uh, Bigfoot hunters? Yeah. Right, you watch it because it's entertaining and it's something to do, but you'd be, highly, you're, you'd be really surprised if they found something uh, in their hunting. And so some of us go about Easter that way. We're here because it's something to do, but we'd be shocked if we found anything. We'd be shocked if there was any reality to what Christians talk about. But for others of us, we believe it in our heads, we've acknowledged that we believe it, and yet it doesn't seem to sink down uh, into our hearts. Blaise Pascal called the distance from your head to your heart the longest distance in the universe. To actually get what you believe to be true in your mind down into your heart so that it finds its way out in a, in a hope-filled life is a, is a massive gap for many of us. And so we want to approach this story of the resurrection uh, through the eyes of the woman uh, that finds herself at the center of the story. 
this woman, Mary Magdalene, which simply uh, means Magdalene wasn't her last name. It simply means Mary from Magdala, which is a town in Galilee, uh, north of where our story today takes place in Israel. And Mary finds herself in the very center of this story. She's the first to see the empty tomb, and she's the first uh, to whom Jesus appears. And so we're going to try to put ourselves into Mary's perspective today. We're going to seek to hear the question that Mary hears. We're going to seek to see the sight that Mary sees, to hear the name that Mary hears in the hopes that we might also enter into the new world that Mary finds herself in. First, we want to hear the question that Mary is asked. Twice in our story, uh, Mary is asked this question, why are you weeping? Woman, why are you weeping? Starting in verse 11, Mary's alone. Uh, She's alone and she's weeping in the middle of a graveyard in the dark. I'm not sure there's a, a more pitiable scene than to be there alone with no one to comfort you, weeping in a place of death before the light uh, has come to, come to be, standing there weeping. And the word, uh, the Greek word used here for weeping uh, isn't a sniffly pretty cry. This is wailing. Yeah. This is a guttural wailing. It's, it's the, kind of, the kind of crying that if you were also with her in the garden that day, you would have heard it. It would have been loud enough that people might have come to her and said, woman, why are you weeping? Why are you wailing? in such an uncontrollable and deep way. So Mary twice has asked this question, woman, why are you weeping? She's asked once uh, by the angels who she finds in the tomb. And then she's asked once by, though she doesn't recognize him yet, uh, Jesus, why are you weeping? You know, this question uh, shouldn't be heard in in a mocking tone. It's not a, why are you weeping? Why are you crying? Suck it up. Be a big boy. Be a big girl. Stop your crying. No, this is a, story, this is a question that, that really does seek an answer. Why are you weeping? Right? We've seen uh, this God through the pages of the Bible seek out weeping and desperate women over and over again. Right? He sees Hagar abandoned and left to die in the midst of the wilderness. He sees her in her weeping and in her hopelessness, and he comes to her. We've seen already in the Gospel of John him go to the the woman by the well, the Samaritan woman who'd suffered broken relationship after broken relationship, and he sought her out in her weeping. And so now here are the angels, here is Jesus saying, Mary, why are you weeping? Why are you weeping? You know, this world that we live in provides ample reason for weeping, right? It's the reality uh, of the world that we've inherited is that it's a broken world. It's a world that is marked by sin and injustice, greed and lust and anger and violence and war. There are plenty of reasons in this life why we weep, why life in this world often feels like it did for Mary, weeping alone in the dark without anyone to hear us. And so Jesus comes to each of us and says, why are you weeping? Why are you? Why are you weeping? Where in your life have you felt the effects of living in a world this broken? Why are you weeping? Are you weeping because of the heartache of broken relationships, divorce, separation? Are you weeping because of that? Are you weeping because of your 
your own battles with habits you can't seem to break, your own battles with addiction and lust, your own wrestling with those hungers that you've told yourself you're not going to go to again. Is that why you're weeping? Are you weeping because of the pain of the world around you? The injustice and the, the pain that we see in the world, the violence with which we treat each other, the prejudice that still haunts us? But Jesus brings to each of us this question. Why are you weeping? Where have you felt the pain and brokenness of this life? And it's not a hypothetical question. You are not alone in the dark. There's somebody there who wants to listen to you. The psalmist puts in one place of God, he says that God, you are the God who stores up all of my tears in your bottle. That our weeping is not lost on God. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't overlook it. But he asks us to be honest about it and to bring it to him. It's interesting to me that Mary, in the midst of her despair, in the midst of her weeping, in the midst of her loneliness, that it's to her that Jesus appears. She's the one who sees Jesus. Not Peter, the, the founder of the early church, the rock. Not John, the author of this gospel. But it's in the midst of the bleakness of her life that Jesus meets her. You know, Mary lived much of her life weeping alone. We don't know everything about uh, this woman Mary's story. But what we do know about her shows us that she lived a hard and heartbroken life. In the Gospel of Mark, uh, we're told that Jesus, when he meets Mary, casts seven demons out of her. That he cast out of her seven demons. Now, I don't know exactly what that means. Right? Why some people are said to have one demon, some people are said to have a legion of demons. This woman is said to have seven demons. A number that often in, in biblical writing is a, is a, is a, a symbolic number of, of completion. That this war, woman's inner life was a perfect storm of chaos and evil. That her life uh, was lived with a kind of unrest and unwellness that would have led her, that would have led the people around her to look at her as a crazy woman. We don't know exactly the form that this, uh, that this evil oppression took in her life. Maybe it was that simply that she, she appeared crazy. Maybe it was that she was flying off the handle in uncontrollable anger. Maybe it was there's a Christian tradition that, that says that in her life it showed up in immorality, that she was a promiscuous woman, perhaps even a prostitute. But what we know is that this woman's inner chaos, her inner turmoil, led into outward displays of that, that wickedness and turmoil. And then that would have led people to want to distance themselves from her. Uh, in Luke's gospel, she's lumped together with a group of women who Jesus healed from illness. Which, if, if you read the gospels, makes sense that often uh, inner chaos, inner evil, manifests itself in bodily Sickness, illness, this was kind of one of the, the core pieces of the ways that the Jews of Jesus' day approached the world, that sin on the inside led to suffering on the outside. And so whether that was true or not, certainly that's the way that the people around her viewed her. Because this woman is a mess. This woman is crazy. This woman's uncontrollable. And so she would have lived her life in isolation and shame. You know, shame is that thing that happens to us. You know, at first it starts because we're convinced that if the people around us knew the depths of the mess of our lives, knew our sin, knew our addictions, knew our habits, if people really knew us, they would want to distance themselves from us. They would reject us. 
And so what we start to do in shame is we start doing that work for them. We just start to say, well, you know what, I'm going to, since if you know me, you're going to reject me. I'm just going to, I'm going to stay back here. I'm not going to be known. I'm going to live in isolation. And that was where Jesus found this woman, isolated in her shame. And we know that Jesus healed her, that Jesus cast out the demons. He cleansed the infirmities. He restored her in body and soul. And so she became a follower of Jesus. She became one of his disciples, not one of the, not one of the 12, but one of those people who left her entire life to follow Jesus. This woman who said, Jesus, you've so turned around the chaos of my life that I will follow you wherever you go. And so Jesus redeems her. He heals her. He sets her free. She begins to follow him. But more than that, Jesus undoes her shame. He knits her back together into a community. Everywhere in the Gospels, from the moment she meets Jesus on, Mary is listed with other women. She's listed with, with two women in Hannah and Suzanne that she's, she's seen with constantly, and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Right? That Jesus not only restores her to God, restores him to himself, but he restores her to friendship, to community, to fellowship. He heals her shame. And so it doesn't surprise us that Mary... Mary, this woman whose entire life really had been a life of weeping, except for a brief interlude where she walked with Jesus, that she is not letting go of him easily. She's the last one to leave the cross as Jesus dies. It's, it's Mary and the other Mary, the mother of Jesus. She's there with him as he dies. She's the last one uh, that sees the stone roll over the tomb as though she can't stand to be separated from him finally and permanently. She's the woman standing by the grave before they lower the casket in and cover it in dirt. She's there before the, the, the stone rolls away, or before the stone's rolled over. And then here, she's the first to come to the tomb, seeking to tend to the body of Jesus. We're told that Jesus, because the Passover was near, wasn't given a proper burial. He was hastily wrapped and thrown in the tomb. So that after the Sabbath, uh, when the first day of the week came, he could be properly buried. His body could be treated and, and, and prepared for burial. And it's Mary who comes to greet him, or comes to do this. And so Mary is seen clinging to Jesus, clinging to the one who took her weeping away, who took her sorrow away. And yet she can't find him. He's not there. She hasn't yet begun to hope for resurrection to hope for good news. She's weeping because she thinks that somebody has come and taken uh, Jesus away for some unknown reason. And so that's the question that Mary hears. Why, why are you weeping? And in the sight that she sees, we're told uh, that it's still dark out. And so Mary stoops down in verse 11 to look into the tomb See, the way a tomb would have worked uh, in those days is it would have been dug into the side of a low hill uh, such that somebody would have to stoop down to get through the entrance. And then once inside this tomb, you would have seen a small dark cave with benches uh, carved into the sides of the cave on which the dead would be laid. Now, we're told uh, earlier in the chapter or in the previous chapter that this was a new tomb freshly dug that no body had yet been laid into. And so Jesus' body was laid on one of those benches that was carved into the side. And so Mary stoops down to get in, 
And she looks over to the side and at, at this bench, at this seat, where the body would have been laid. Uh, at the head of the seat and at the foot of the seat, there were angels that she sees. We don't, we don't get a lot of detail on exactly what they looked like, but she knew that they were angels. And she sees them there. You know, I think John writes this account to point us to something. Uh, that he wants us to see that this tomb, this ordinary tomb that looked like the same kind of tomb that hundreds of thousands of other Jews would have been laid in in Jesus' day, that this tomb has become the holiest place on earth. That this tomb had become that place where heaven and earth have met. Because in that tomb, the Spirit of God brought God in the flesh, Jesus, from death to life. And that John is drawing parallels to help us see that it's now in this place where Jesus was raised, that heaven and earth meet, that's the holiest place on earth. You know, the previous holiest place on earth, if you were to walk up to any, uh, any Jewish person of Jesus' day or any day prior to Jesus' day and ask, what is the holiest place on earth? They would have said it's the Holy of Holies. It's that place in the center of the temple. So the temple was the holiest place, that place where heaven and earth met. And at the very center of the temple, there was the Holy of Holies, this little tent that you would have pried to get into. And only one person, one man, was allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies, and that only once a year. Yeah. Right? The high priest was able to go into the Holy of Holies on uh, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And he could only go in if he had the blood of a sacrifice to pour out, to sprinkle on top of the seat, on top of the bench that stood in the middle of the Holy of Holies, what's called the mercy seat. Yeah. And he would sprinkle the, the, the seat with the blood. And if he had the blood and it was the right day, the priest could stand in the holiest place on earth, that place where God's presence was, without dying, right? Without dying as a sinful person in front of a holy God. He could do it one day a year, one person in Israel, in one place. When Mary comes into the tomb, she sees what I think is being described in a deliberate way to, to show that this is the Holy of Holies. Just as in that place, there would have been the bench, the mercy seat, that would have been stained with blood over hundreds of years of sacrifices being, being thrown out on it. And over the seat, at its foot and at its head, were two angels whose wings would have touched. Yeah, yeah. Over the seat. Yeah. Over the blood-stained seat that housed God's presence. And so when she comes in, she would have seen a bloody bench, a bloody seat. What do you think it looks like when somebody takes a crucified body that hasn't been tended, wraps it in cloth, and throws it on a bench? It's bloody. On the foot and at the head were sitting two angels in glory, saying, why are you weeping? That this place has now become that place where heaven and earth meet, stained no longer by the blood of lambs uh, and animal sacrifices, but stained by the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The one sacrifice that could be made one time instead of again and again, year after year, and what do we know about this new holiest place? Mary, shameful and sinful though she was, stands in it and does not die. She's not struck down. Even John and Peter, remember who Peter is. 
Peter is the cowardly Christ denier. That as Jesus is going to the cross, says, I never knew him. And yet he now is able to stand there in the presence of God. And instead of being struck down dead, is able to stand right there. Because the Lamb of God has taken away the sin of the world. No longer does a holy God have to be kept separate from an unholy and sinful people. But we can stand. Not because of our own goodness, not because of the sacrifices and efforts that we bring to God. But because of the perfect sacrifice that Jesus has laid down for us. Mary, I believe, in that moment would have known, oh, this is what it cost. This is what it cost Jesus all those years ago to welcome me. This is what it took him to not be put off by my sin and my shame and my demons, but for him to embrace me, for him to love me, for him to accept me. The whole time it was going to cost something like this, the death of the Lamb of God, in order to open up a way that me, Mary, could call his Father my Father, his God my God. And so what she saw there was access, access to God. Fleming Rutledge, uh, in her wonderful book, The Crucifixion, puts it this way. She writes, The power of God to make right what has been wrong is what we see by faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ on the third day. Unless God is the one who raises the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, there cannot be serious talk of forgiveness for the worst of the worst, the mass murderers, the torturers, the serial killers or even the least of the worst, the everyday offenses against our common humanity that causes marriages to fail, friendships to end, enterprises to collapse, and silent misery to be the common lot of millions. All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. That is what's happening on the cross. Mary can come home to God. We can come home to God through the sacrifice of the cross. But more than that, more than seeing what Mary saw and being asked the question that she's asked, we need to hear the name that Mary heard. I love the way that this scene is painted, the way that that John lays out the scene for us. Mary is there weeping in the darkness. And Jesus comes to her. We don't know if he's been there all along uh, and she missed it and and, uh, and John and Peter missed it, but he's there and he comes to her. And he asked, woman, why are you weeping? We don't know why Mary can't recognize him. This is clearly a man that she knew well. We don't know that if, it, if, if his resurrected body was somehow so transformed and so glorious that it was hard, but that doesn't seem to be it because she mistakes him for a gardener. She doesn't mistake him for an angel. She doesn't mistake him for some holy being. She mistakes him for a gardener. I think what it is is that it is, the, the light is low, right? It's, it's, it's pre-dawn. And we're told that she's been wailing. Have you ever been crying so hard that you can't quite see right? Right? That the veil of tears in your eyes keeps you from seeing uh, as clearly as it is. And you have to dab your eyes and clear out what fogs them. And so I think that, that what's going on here is that Mary is weeping so deeply that through her tears she can't make out uh, the person of Jesus. She, his figure is obscured. Until he says one word, Mary, Mary. He says her name to her. And then she responds, Rabboni, Rabbi, teacher. 
He calls her the name that she's heard him call her probably hundreds of times before. And so she calls out with the name that she called him, Rabbi, my teacher, I'm your follower. But she hears him, even when she can't recognize him, she hears him call her name. There was something about the way that Jesus said her name, full of compassion, full of love, full of tenderness, full of knowing, that allowed her to know nobody else says my name the way that Jesus calls my name. Nobody else says it in the way that has the same kind of power. This was a woman that when everyone else in her life was calling her crazy, Jesus called her Mary. He called her by her name. When everybody else was calling her immoral or worse, Jesus called her Mary. He called her by her name. When everyone else called her a freak, when everyone else called her uncontrollable, when everybody else called her a shameful person, he called her Mary. Maybe you know what it's like in your life to be called some names, to have some names stick to you, that have the power to, to change the way that you think about yourself. And then Jesus comes to each of us, and he calls us by our names because he knows us. He knows us to the depths of us. He knows Mary in the midst of her shame and all of the stuff she tried to hide. And he knows you in exactly the same way. He doesn't just know you in your dressed-up Easter Sunday self. He knows you to the depths of you. The parts of yourself that even your closest friends and your spouse don't know. The parts of yourself that you think if anyone really knew them, they would want nothing more to do with me. Jesus sees it, and he knows it, and he loves you. There is no love like the love that comes from someone who truly knows you. It's the deepest longing of the human heart is to be really known and really loved. Right, when someone says that they love us but they don't really know us, it's cheap, it's superficial, it doesn't impact us because you say, well, you don't, you don't really know me. Right, but if somebody knows us and doesn't love us, well, that's the fear that we avoid our whole lives is, is being exposed, being vulnerable, and not being loved. But when someone knows us as we really are, warts and all, and loves us, gives themselves to us without reservation. That's what has the power to drive out shame and to make us feel and know that we are truly loved. And so when Jesus says Mary's name, she recognizes him instantly. John, earlier in his gospel in John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. They hear my voice, and they know my voice, and I call them by name. And so what we see here at the tomb is one of Jesus' little lambs hearing her voice and going to follow her shepherd, going to follow her king. The gospel always begins uh, with Jesus calling our name. Right? Yes, Paul tells us that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, that ultimately there is a, a calling out, us calling Jesus' name, that happens by faith. But the first step isn't us calling out to him, but it's him calling out to us. Him calling us by name and calling us to himself. Do you hear him when he calls you by name? That's what has to happen for it to go from just being a, a, a distant, yeah, Jesus died for sinners. Yeah, Jesus rose from the dead to give victory over, over death. To make it become personal, to go, no, no, he died for my sin. He rose from my life. It's my name that was on his lips. It was my name that was on his heart. 
He calls each of us to himself by name. And then finally, uh, we need to wake up uh, into the new world that Mary wakes to find here. Mary, the moment that Jesus calls her name, finds herself in a world totally unlike the world that she knew before. She comes into this new world where death is defeated and new life is blossoming up. She calls Jesus the gardener when she first sees him. And now this is on one level a mistake, right? Jesus is Jesus. Uh, He's not the gardener. But on another level, uh, her mistake is meant to point us to something that is exactly right. John, over and over again, has been pointing out that this is all happening in a garden. That Jesus, next to where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden there was a tomb. And now when Jesus appears, he's mistaken for a gardener. You know, creation started in a garden. Adam and Eve were placed in a garden, and it was a garden that was the place of their testing and the place of their failure. The place where sin and death began to break into the world. And now it's in a garden. It's in a garden that the new gardener, right? Ad, you know, Adam and Eve functionally were gardeners. They were told to, to cultivate the garden, to name the animals. They were, they were made to be gardeners. And now here, Jesus, the new Adam, the one who brings us, just as Adam brought the world from perfection into brokenness, so the new Adam is bringing the world from brokenness back into perfection, back into wholeness, back into holiness, back into life. And when this new garden begins to bloom, It's the spring. It's the time when new life erupts out of a life of death. And and Jesus comes to bring new bloom, new blossom, new life to this world, a world that's completely made different by his resurrection. We're told, we get the, the clue that it's a totally different world when in verse 17, Jesus says to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. What he's saying is, look, you're leaving a world We are forever leaving a world where you have to cling to Jesus in order to know Jesus, where you have to wrestle him to yourself, his physical form to know him. He's saying, Mary, no, I've got to go. I'm going to ascend to the Father. And then what he's told us in John is that then I'm going to send my spirit so that I'm going to make my life with you. That this garden, this garden that he's remaking is the garden where we are our beloveds and he is ours, where we know him, not physically, but where by his spirit he makes his life with us and we with him. Whereas he says here that I'm going to my father and your father, to my God and your God, that the veil is torn open, that the sacrifice has been made. And in this new world, it's populated by people who can know God by faith, who can know Jesus by faith as he really is, and who then can get what Mary got, which is the call to go and tell everybody. Right? It's an amazing and scandalous thing that Mary, the once demon-possessed woman, the woman who was marred beyond uh, anyone in her societies thinking she could be set right, that she is made, in some ways, the first apostle, the one who's given the good news and told to go and tell, yeah. go and proclaim it. Right? We know that the ancients, we know that the Romans, one of the reasons they didn't take Christianity seriously was because the people who first announced it weren't much in their eyes, right? Celsus, one of the early Roman uh, opponents of Christianity, said that one of the ways that we know Christianity isn't true is that the first people who witnessed the resurrection were women. And he says, these are his words, not mine, we all know that women are hysterical. 
Right? We all know that women are always saying they see things that aren't real. We can't, we can't take women seriously. We certainly know that we can't take a woman like this seriously, a woman who everybody knows is crazy, everybody knows is demon-possessed. And yet Jesus chose a woman such as her to be his mouthpiece, to announce the good news that death is dead, life is coming, a garden is blooming, and it's a garden that will one day drive out every bit of sickness and death and sin in the world. And he uses Mary, and he uses you, and he uses me, broken as we are, to celebrate in our lives and in our words that new life has come. Let's pray.